0: My guest today is Ian Redmond. Ian Redmond is an internationally renowned conservationist with more than 45 years experience ranging from field research to anti-poaching policy development with the United Nations. Ian is the head of conservation at EcoFlix, ambassador for the UN's Convention on Migratory Species, chairman at Ape Alliance, chairman at the Gorilla organization, and co-founder, of rebalance Earth, what's up, Ian?
1: Um, I have difficulty saying no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, uh, that's that's what happens. I um, think that you, you uh, I before we start recording, you asked me to keep it uh painlessly short in the introduction, and I think that I, I'm not going to lie. I think I did a good job. I don't know. That's my opinion of myself right now. I have, I have so many questions that I want to get to. But before we get into all that, I think maybe, maybe a little bit of uh Zen kind of like talk about something kind of like just fun. Uh, you sent me a, a really cool video of you hanging out with an elephant uh, in a forest somewhere. It's very cool. It made me wish I could have an experience like that. I've never, uh, I've never experienced uh, like interacting with an elephant in the wild. It just looks amazing. My question is just for the video, like, um, uh, What is the story behind that video, and how do you know that elephant?
1: Interestingly, I I didn't know that elephant personally, Um, but the elephant was on Mount Elgin, uh, on on the Kenya side of the mountain. Mount Elgin is a a huge shield volcano. If you think of it like a giant pizza, half the pizza is in Uganda, and half of it is in uh, Kenya. And in 1980... Um, I took part in a an expedition called Operation Drake, which was actually a circumnavigation of the globe, um, 400 years after Sir Francis Drake's circumnavigation. And the sailing ship called the Eye of the Wind um, sailed around the world. And wherever it called in, the organizers set up lots of little sort of mini expeditions and projects uh, loosely associated with the ship's passage, but not, directly to do with it because mount elgin is on the other side of kenya to the coast so <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: um
1: but well while, while the eye of the wind was birthed in in mombasa um lots of things happened in kenya organized by operation drake um which is a project of the Scientific Exploration Society. Look up SES. Not SAS, they wouldn't let me in there, but they let me into the SES.
0: <laughs> oh, the SAS. That's that's your version of the Navy SEALs, right? The, over in Yeah, Britain. the
1: Special Air <laughs> Service is, is like seriously tough blokes that, that go and do military things. I, I'm not one of those. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the Scientific Exploration Society is, is is affiliated to the Explorers Club. So for North American uh, listeners who, who are familiar with the Explorers Club, um, SES is sort of a S-E-S is like a UK version. Um, but anyway, in, in, um, in Kenya, uh, I hooked up with some f- friends I'd, I'd been with on the same expedition in New Guinea the previous year. And there I was um, studying reptiles and amphibians. Um, but in uh, Kenya, I, I basically was more of a social call. And I, I was asking them if they could get me back to New Guinea. Because while I was in New Guinea, I had an encounter with the world's longest lizard. Wow. Which is really? a, a very elusive lizard. And its maximum length has not been determined by science, i.e., people who the scientific world believe have measured it in a way that can't be disputed. Um, but there were tales of it reaching 25, 30 feet in length, which is a big lizard. Um, this is that's, the That's dragon. Like,
0: a, like an enormous crocodile size lizard.
1: Yeah, um and or bigger than the the accepted maximum length of, of crocodiles too. But but unlike crocodiles, which are big heavy reptiles, uh the Papuan dragon is a slender lizard. And the what the <laughs> the herpetologists call the snout-to-vent length, sort of nose to bum, <laughs> um <laughs> is compared to the tail length, uh one-third. So if you had a six-foot lizard, nose to bum, um the tail would be twelve foot, so you'd have an eighteen foot lizard, but long and slender rather than big and stocky. Mind you, an eighteen foot lizard <laughs> standing up on its back legs and looking you in the eye at the same height as your eye is quite an intimidating.
0: I'm sorry, I, I don't want to interrupt, but uh, having uh, I've I've been very close to alligators and crocodiles like sometimes in my life. I know that they're you know what's you know what's safe about you know about where to stand pretty much uh at, at the risk of uh, exposing more of my ignorance of biology i have never heard of this lizard is it dangerous i mean that's a that's an enormous i mean that's a crocodile sized lizard it's a
1: and indeed the, the pigeon english um term for it is puk puk belong tree or the tree climbing crocodile Whoa. so they see it in the same sort of thought as, as, as same sort of group as, as as crocodiles taxonomically they're very different this is a, a monitor lizard um Family Varanidae, the same um, uh, genus actually as as the, Pap- the the Komodo dragon. M- more people are familiar when you think about dragons um, that are real and live and not mythical. Um, you think yeah. of the Komodo dragon, uh, and that's Varanus komodoensis. But in in New Guinea there is a Papuan dragon, uh, Varanus Salvador, salvadori, um, and it it's maximum length is still open to question because no one's actually caught and measured or or proved beyond doubt what it reaches. Um, So while I was on Operation Drake in New Guinea in 1979 up until the beginning of 1980, um, the last thing we did there was to go and look for the Papuan dragon and see if we could find a really big one to confirm that it does indeed reach the length that the hunters told me it does. Now, you know local hunters are often a great source of information for visiting scientists who are there for a very short time, and these guys live there all their life and know the local fauna. So in asking local hunters, um, you know, you're familiar with the species, of course, book P- belong P- tree, um, and and how, how big is the biggest one you've seen, So it's from here to that stump over there and you paste it out and and one guy was saying, 15 paces so 15 oh paces god. whether you're <laughs> you know, yards or meters it's 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 a big lizard yes um and i said you know what was it doing at the time so it was it's was hunting so it, um what did it kill one of my dogs
0: oh my god it had a
1: ring of truth so so this guy cares about his hunting dogs which help him catch deer or um other species bush wallabies um but he saw one drop out of the tree and and kill one of his dogs. So interesting story. Um
0: yeah, I I was yes. terrifying oh, a a lizard, a monitor lizard that is a tree climbing lizard that can drop out of the tree and eat your dog. That's a yeah. that's a that's
1: that's and, like... and allegedly use its very long tail <laughs> like a whip um as a weapon and and have the very very sharp interlocking teeth that monitor lizards have oh. seemed like an interesting thing to go and investigate and and when I yeah. met the Operation Drake people in, in Nairobi uh, in 1980 when I was on my way back from some guerrilla work uh, I was asking them can you help me get a flight back to um, New Guinea because I really want to find the longest lizard in the world yeah um, and they said no oh. so while we were having this conversation <laughs> a chap called Dick Snailham came into the room He'd just come back from a recce, a reconnaissance uh, mission, to Mount Elgin. And I heard the word elephant and caves in the same sentence. Yes. Which doesn't seem very likely because, um, you know, caves, you think, well, oh, bats, cavemen, bears maybe, but this is Africa, no bears in Africa. Um, so by ears, pricked up and and... I'd already agreed, actually, this is too good an opportunity to miss. I'm going to go with them on one of their projects. And we went and surveyed the fauna and flora of what was known as the Lost World. <laughs> it sounds um, very, uh, very dramatic, but this was okay. a, a volcanic plug of um, a couple of miles across in the, the centre of a crater, which was itself inside an outer crater. This is on Mount Suswa in the Rift Valley. Not, uh, it's a day trip from Nairobi. People go there for picnics in the Outer Caldera. But the inner crater and the the chunk of the plug of rock sticking up there was very difficult to access and was covered in forest. The only forest for miles around. Weird. How yeah. come there's a forest growing in this lost world, um, which is a translation from the Maasai term for it. So the Maasai regard it as the lost world. It's too hard to get to this. No uh, streams of drinking water there. So the, Operation Drake um, had the assistance of of the Royal Engineers, um, the, the British Army, um, thanks to its leader, John Blashford Snell, who was then a serving officer in the army, and um, a lot of young people who came along as so-called young explorers. And it was a two-year round-the-world voyage Look it up Operation Drake. It's a fantastic experience for all those young people who now, 40-something years on, are looking back on that with with you know, uh, a very positive glow. Um yeah. So hearing of cave elephant, what? um It turns out that on, on Mount Elgon, uh, there are caves. I mean, there are caves on Mount Suswa, but the caves in Mount Suswa are lava tubes where a flow of lava sort of cools on the outside, but it's still liquid on the inside and it empties itself out. So the centre of the, of the lava tube um becomes hollow and then the sort of drips of cooling lava coming from the ceiling, which look like very spiky stalactites, but they're not stalactites. They haven't formed by minerals being deposited over a very long time. It's a very fairly quick drip and then cool. Yeah. So a sort of lava spike. Um, oh. So lava tubes I, I saw on, on Mount Suswa. On Mount Elgin, the caves are totally different. And my um, research there over subsequent years, um, drew me to the conclusion, and, and many people agree, some people disagree, that the caves are largely the result of elephant mining. Really? The elephants uh, have created these caves rather than coming across a cave and think, oh, let's be unlike any other elephant in the world and go deep underground. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is a, an example of elephant culture where, where knowledge is passed down through the generations and the baby elephants on Mount Elgin go with their mum into the cave Not knowing that they are the only elephants in the world that go underground, they just think this is what elephants do.
0: Yeah.
1: But when your mum feels hungry for salt, you go into the cave, and your mum scrapes at the cave wall with her tusks while you fiddle around with your trunk and you know play in the dark, absolutely dark, no light at all. Yeah. Uh, And and it was my uh, unexpected delight to find this as a research project in Kenya, which is a country full of wildlife biologists and and filmmakers. And and at that point, no one had made a film about or done a study of underground elephants. And yet the logo of the cave exploration group of East Africa, a small group of enthusiastic cavers, was a, a cave with a rope ladder and an elephant in the cave. So, I mean, it was known to some people but the outside world, well, most people—I I, I suspect yourself. When I say, "Oh, I study underground elephants," they say, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would... ask someone to come up with a list of animals that go underground, and you're going to think They're moles and gophers. And...
0: <laughs> well, it's it's so incredible too. Like, um, there's some there's some. I mean, there's so much information in the world, and I think these days you like you just get bombarded, and maybe like sometimes you shut things out. But uh, as much as I love elephants and and you know, I think of them as just like uh, you know, incredibly like sentient, like uh, wonderful, thoughtful, caring animals. All the stuff I think about elephants. Uh, somehow, some way, no one has ever ever informed me that there are elephants that uh, go spelunking.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um. So, so that was exciting to hear about that, and and that is why, um, many years later. Uh, I was with a group of trackers that I'd set up in 2001 as the Mount Elgin Elephant Monitoring Team. So the Meme Team. Oh, hell the yeah. The Meme Team consisted of local trackers, Kenya Wildlife Service rangers, and occasionally me uh, or, or other uh, interested scientists. Um, and we were monitoring the elephants to better understand their use of the forest and their visits to the caves. When, when I first went there in 1980, I sat in a cave and waited. Um, and when I went back in 81 um, with my then fiancé, now my wife, still my wife, believe it or not. Hey, um, congratulations. We, we lived in Kism Cave, in, in the mouth of the cave, behind a waterfall on a rock uh, for six weeks. Wow. And for three and a half three and a half weeks, no elephants.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: Daily pasts of, of fruit bats and insectivorous bats in different parts of the cave, uh, antelope picking their way in, um, no elephants, which was frustrating, but the study at that point was to wait in the cave for the elephants to come. Um, with the meme team, we wanted to take the, the observers to the elephants and stick with them. And this was partly informed by my background studying gorillas, uh, as you will have gathered from my, um, bio or YouTube channel that gorillas feature large in my life, yeah. um, and did so before I went to New Guinea and before I heard of underground elephants. Um, and the, the gorillas I studied, I had the good fortune to work with, um, were those that had been studied by Diane Fossey. And, and I, in 1976, went to Rwanda as on a trial <laughs> as a as Diane Fossey's research assistant. She said, you, you get here, we'll try you. All right. And if you spend more than three months, <laughs> I'll pay for your Nairobi too kigali fair right. i still did, had to get to
0: um, did, she, did she like you
1: <laughs> in the end after much um right. yeah we had an up and down sort of relationship but yes um um if you read her book gorillas in the mist and and the books about diana of which there are several um my uh time there which was some of the most turbulent time in the yeah. in the history of the mountain gorilla research oh, so
0: you were you were there during the uh, uh gorillas in the mist or yes was that- Yes. oh wow that's incredible
1: um, wow and and really before I, I got there just after diane had done her phd um so she was dr diane fossey and and the world authority of mountain gorillas and i just sent a letter as an undergraduate um having heard of her work from one of her um, students who was writing up his phd at cambridge um at, at uni i, I organized a talks to the biology society which is a great thing to do because you you read something interesting, you write to them and say, can you come and give us a talk? And they say, yes, and they come. And so you meet these really interesting people. And So I met Sandy Harcourt and Sandy came and gave a talk and I put him up in my flat and picked his brains and got Diane's postal address. This was pre-internet, pre-email. This was writing a letter on paper and bung it in a letterbox and hoping it a couple of weeks later would make it up the side of the mountain to diane's desk okay. and then waiting for months um which had a similar two-week journey to so to wait
0: a, so you spent time with uh diane in in the field together like
1: yes yes that's that's so, how i was introduced my first um job if you can call it a job was volunteering as diane foss's research assistant
0: i have to and, i have to ask is like it's um gorillas are not necessarily like the an animal you should just walk right up to if you are a if you are an idiot and you don't know how to approach maybe an animal, did did she did she teach you how to um like be around these animals?
1: Yes, and and this was the background bit of information I needed to fill in the story of of how I came to be having a conversation with an elephant who I didn't know. Yeah, um, in, in the video that you saw, um, so yeah, D- Diane had um learned how to win the trust of wild gorillas. I mean, if an idiot walks into a forest where there are gorillas uh, and doesn't know what to do, probably the gorillas will just run away.
0: Because yeah. humans
1: are generally very bad news yeah. for, for gorillas. Uh, and almost every other human they would have met would have been either highly dangerous or, or equally terrified. And this, as soon as humans and gorillas become aware of each other, they usually flee in opposite directions at great speed, unless they're so close that, that the gorilla feels there isn't time to flee. And and so they will probably make a huge
0: <laughs> <whack> <laughs>
1: vocalization, which will probably result in the human fleeing, unless the human has a weapon, and knows that this is a bluff charge, and that if you want to kill the gorilla, that is your moment.
0: I want to I um, want to bring up a, a quick point. Just uh, you guys heard it here first. Uh, as much as I like Alexander Skarsgard as an actor, uh, the Tarzan movie that he made. Is a probably a pretty inappropriate and incorrect representation of how gorillas act. So, anyway, moving on.
1: <laughs> I'm not even sure if I know that one, but um,
0: it's like it's a remake of Tarzan with Alexander Skarsgard. It's uh, he was raised by gorillas, and there's it's a uh, it's very fantastical. I'm not I'm not gonna say it's no, a but, bad but movie. But in the Edgar
1: Rice Burroughs books, on which all the Tarzan movies, are, uh, the premise is that. Tarzan was raised by anthropoid apes doesn't specify um, whether it is gorillas. And in fact, Tarzan in the original books fights gorillas yeah. who are the enemy of the Manga- Manganhi, um, the, the apes who brought him up. Um, yeah. And there's a very really interesting biography of Tar- Tarzan written by uh, Philip Jose Farmer um, called Tarzan Alive, where he claims that this is actually based on a true story and that there was a, a tribe of um hominids that haven't been described by science. So not gorillas, not chimpanzees, not human, but some survivor. Um, but that most people find that a bit far-fetched. But anyway, yes, I, <laughs> I'm glad you raised Tarzan <laughs> because um, it, it is you can't help but think of that when you're in a family of gorillas being accepted by them. Yes. And this is what Diane had done. She learned to imitate their their contentment calls, <clears throat> their contact calls. Um, that one I just made is is known as a a BV or belch vocalization Mm because it sounds like a belch but then people realize oh no it's not a belch and they do burp a lot and they fart a lot but they also vocalize and these little noises both the voluntary and the involuntary um, let other members of the family know that they're there because if you're in dense vegetation you can't always see each other so you're feeding uh, finding food, eating and and you hear over there and yeah over there, and that's just like a round of BVs to let everybody know that everything's fine and everyone's within earshot of each other. That's cool. And Diane Fossey learned to imitate that sound um, to announce her presence. And and that's unlike most humans who approach animals, um, most of whom traditionally have been hunters and they've tried to creep up on the animals. And a lot of biologists initially tried to do that too. Creep up on the animal, you watch it until it suddenly becomes aware of you and then it runs away. And if you follow it, it will assume that you're trying to attack it, and it will run away even faster. And what Diane did was to turn that around and announce her presence. Eventually, the, the gorillas got the idea that this particular human, who who made gorilla-like noises and and squatted down so that on the same eye line as the gorillas, was uh, harmless. And there's also a story that that she noticed being not very good at climbing trees that when she tried to climb a tree to get a better view of the gorillas, the gorillas who saw her were fascinated by her inept tree climbing. <laughs> and yeah. so she would ham it up and be even worse at climbing trees than she actually was to get the gorillas' curiosity. And that's the thing about intelligent animals. If they become curious about you, then you become the object of their study and you can study them. Yeah, And you have these two scientists a human scientist and a, in this case a gorilla scientist looking at each other thinking, what on earth? Why? I wonder. And then you've got the, the basis of a, a relationship that isn't based on fear. It's based yeah. on trust.
0: I can't even imagine um like an experience, like being able to be with the gorillas in their habitat and them being accepting of you like enough to like, you know, where they feel safe, you feel safe. I My, my, embarrassingly enough to say like my last experience with gorillas was at the Seattle zoo Uh, a couple years ago. I was in Seattle and I was like, well, I want to go see the, I think the gorillas were probably what I wanted to go see the most. And I was very lucky because at the time they had several adolescents and uh, it was, it was pretty cool when they were all hanging out like by the, but it's, you know, it's weird because there's, you know, there's that like bulletproof glass between you. And uh, for some reason, the, adult male that uh they that was in that area uh chose me like got interested in me uh and i think i pissed him off i don't know what i did uh but uh there was a there's a guy there i don't know how much of a scientist he was i'm not sure i'm i'm certain he's not on your level but uh he uh the the gorilla came over he's a silverback and i was wearing all gray and maybe that was like a weird uh clothing choice i had made i was one of the la- the large i was probably the largest person uh saying there's a lot of children and i was like you know a larger larger male and he came over kind of like gave me some like some looks and then just turned around and like shoved his butt at me at the glass and then the guy who i'm not sure if he's necessarily a uh a complete expert in gorillas but he worked at the zoo and he's like that means he doesn't like you and i was like what (laughs) but I don't know. Uh, What do you think?
1: (laughs) How could he know not to like me?
0: Well, I I don't know. I didn't know if uh, them sticking their butt in your face is like some kind of uh, like a sign, like, hey, uh, get out of here. I don't
1: know. I think if he didn't like you, he'd slammed his hand against the glass and made you you jump. That's that's what I I thought.
0: I thought like actually me and him were like, we could have been, I think had there been no glass, things would have gone much better between us. That's my
1: belief. You you don't have to imagine what it's like to meet gorillas in the wild because thanks to the work that followed Dian Fossey, um, a system of tourism has built up and and you can go to Uganda or Rwanda or or if you ignore your State Department's travel advisory, the Democratic Republic of Congo and meet habituated gorillas in the company of trained professional guides who will make the introduction and and ensure that both... Both species remain calm and content.
0: I actually had written a question for you about that, but um, we never got to how you met the elephant. Uh,
1: So yes, I I warned (laughs) you about going off on tangents. Um, So the method that Diane developed for winning the trust of gorillas was not to take them by surprise, but to announce her presence. Yeah. Because in a forest, you often hear someone coming long before you see them. You don't know what it is. You just hear the sound of something moving in the forest. So if you're with, and I've been with a family of gorillas, when this happens, something's moving over there. Everyone stops chewing and cocks an ear, because when you're chewing, you can't hear properly. So just as we, what was that? You you kind of angle your ear and then you crane your head and try and see what it is that's walking towards you. Yeah. Diane found that if she used gorilla contact calls, then they knew there was someone over there who's who's like a gorilla um,
0: yeah.
1: and at first of course he's ah, a human and it will bark and run away but eventually they'll, they'll give up on the barking and running all, away and accept that, that this human um isn't a threat yeah and i had the benefit of arriving there nearly 10 years bit years after diane has started so the gorillas that i was initially studying were completely used to visitors and using, uh, sort of extrapolating that method to elephants, I figured that when walking through the forest, if you approach elephants, that you, you, normally you're, you're um, if you've got a, a tracker with you, a, a guide or a ranger, who he knows about elephants, he will have a, a sock with wood ash in it. And he'll shake the sock full of wood ash and the, the particles will drift. So you'll know the wind direction and you want to approach the elephants downwind so that you're smelling them and they're not smelling you. And then they don't know you're there, if you're very quiet and careful. But the minute they become aware of you, they run away. Okay. Or, or they display, because they're terrified of humans. Yeah. Um, I wanted to try Diane's method. When we get near the elephants, use a sound that that the elephants wouldn't think was threatening. So can you roll your R's? Like that? Arriba! When you're saying, yeah. when you're <laughs> saying ooh, so you can...
0: Okay, that seems more difficult. Uh, I'm trying to roll my my grunt. Oh, <laughs> uh, oh, I can't do it. I think I would just scare an elephant with this one. Oh. Well, <laughs> but,
1: but whatever sound you use, if every time they see you, they hear that sound and they hear that sound and, and you never attack them, at some you know, point it's going to yeah. get through. Okay, this is the guy who rumbles at us and isn't a threat. Yeah. And, and I trained the meme team to do that. Um, because the first time the meme team met the elephants, that's the Mount Elgin Elephant Monitoring Team, if you're paying, if your listeners are paying attention, <laughs> um, there was mutual panic, trumpets and crackling of bamboo as the elephants scattered. Oh, and, no. Uh, very excited, um, panicky rangers, because being on foot in a forest around elephants is scary.
0: Yeah, they're you very know, large.
1: They're <laughs> large, and if they're frightened and, and they fear you, then they might well bring the fight to you and and then you won't fare so well. So on on this instance, we were tracking elephants, which had not been, I think, visited by the meme team for some time. Uh, and I saw the back end of an elephant feeding in a bush. So a head was in the bush. He wasn't aware of me. And, and again, I don't want to be rude. So I just... And he reversed out the bush, turned around and said, it's a human, ears out. To make himself yeah. look big and, and stopped for a moment. And and then the, this exchange of signaling went on for six minutes. Yeah. And what usually happens, the elephant sticks ears out, the human runs away, and that's the end of it.
0: Yeah.
1: Or if the elephant's really unlucky, the human raises a gun, shoots the elephant, and yes. that's the end of it. And that's yeah. what the elephants fear, of course. That yeah. they, they've all oh, uh, probably most very, elephants in, in very wise. Africa have lost some member of their family to a human with a gun. Yeah. Or even in some cases, a, a, an old fashioned you know, a spear or or some other method. So elephants are generally very nervous around people, especially if the people are on foot and the elephants are in a forest. Yeah. And to reassure them, um, you have to be pretty sure that the next human they meet isn't going to be a, a poacher. Yeah. But the poaching in East Africa had declined a lot since the ivory ban, which was brought in in 1989. So in 2001, um, there wasn't a lot of ivory poaching. There was some. Uh, it hadn't gone away. It still hasn't gone away, sadly. It still has Yeah, so, yeah, it,
0: yeah. But
1: but we felt that um, getting the elephants used to observers would teach us more about the elephants and actually make us better able to protect them. And the involvement of the local community as members of the meme team meant that they, they also had a stake in it. They were getting paid and, and that, and, and when they met other members of the community who might not have had the same motivation, um, they could talk to them. They knew who they were. So, yeah. so it, it helped in both a law enforcement and, uh, elephant management way to have rangers following the elephants. Um, in some places they put a radio call on the elephants, but on Mount Elgin, the, the terrain is very uneven. There are ravines and crevasses, and, and if you dart an elephant and it falls down into a place like that, you can't get a vehicle to it, you can't lift it, it dies. Yeah. So I, I initially, when I was there in 1980, 81, 82, I, I was sort of dreaming of putting a collar on an elephant and tracking where they are. But when I realised the practicalities and the potential risk that posed to the elephants, I no, it's better to carry the collar in your hand, in other words, a, a GPS device. Yeah, rather collar, um, and track the elephants and record their their um travels through the forest, and also be able to predict when they were going to go into a cave. Yeah. And so the moon team originally was set up for, um, in preparation for filming a BBC series that Sir David Attenborough um, produced called Life of Mammals.
0: My favorite. I'm going to go ahead and say, hands down, my favorite uh, voice actor in the world has to be Sir David Attenborough. We actually had a there was on a previous episode of this podcast, there was an argument, uh, well, an argument, but uh, a debate, and it came down to Morgan Freeman and Sir David Attenborough, and I landed on on the side of uh, Sir David. Just uh, might might just be because he's been in. Uh, he's narrated more of the documentaries that have really meant a lot to me. So no offense to Morgan Freeman. I think Morgan Freeman is uh, one of my favorite actors of all time. But absolutely, it's, yes. And he's got yeah. a great
1: voice. He's got a great uh, voice. He would, be, yeah, absolutely. he would be narrating the script, whereas uh David Asenberg writes the script. Yeah. And of course he's got he's got lots of research assistants, but but he's doing it from his, his personal knowledge that he's gleaned from the scientists that support him.
0: I d I didn't even think about the uh the other implications <laughs> i was just i it, it well that was a that was a literally a voice acting like the episode was about voice acting in general and that's how we got on the on the right. subject not on a knowledge base or anything like that it was just who do you think is doing a better job saying the words <laughs> <laughs> yes
1: I, I but i think it does make a difference when you're doing it from a position of knowledge uh, although to be fair um david aston will always say no i'm not the expert on this I've just read about it and talked to people, and and because he's made so many of these documentaries as a, the on-site presenter, I think he has seen more species exhibit more behaviour than any other human ever alive. Yeah. And given that he's 97, I think now, and still narrating, not doing yeah. so much field work, obviously, you slow down a bit when you're in your 90s, but, um, uh, yeah, he, he is... Um, is more than a legend and will always be so because those series that he's narrated and, and, you know, he's made them happen.
0: Yeah. And yeah. he's a knight. Uh, <laughs> and uh, as, as an American, like, so I don't know how uh, over in uh, London and like how, how uh, people in, in the UK feel about that, but like in America, that seems like such a magical thing, like a knight, like, you know, <laughs> it makes you uh
1: I I yep. I do wonder why he was never uh, promoted to the House of Lords. His brother was Richard Attenborough, the actor and film producer. You, you know? can go, you he, can go he... higher
0: than knight. I felt like that was like as high as you go until you're like king.
1: No, no, no. I'm... The lords are the next step up. And uh... <laughs>
0: okay, I yeah, that makes sense. I was, I'm thinking. I always think about like King Arthur, you know, and the Knights of the Round Table. That's that's so. Anyway. Maybe I'll yeah. be a sir someday. Hey, do they do they let Americans be sirs, or is that like just out of the question?
1: Um, n- not. Y- there is sort of an equivalent, an equivalent honor that is bestowed on um, <laughs> on non-British. They're like
0: um, uh, uh, acceptable Yankee. <laughs> what do you call? What do you, you don't call us Yankees. You call us Yanks, right? Uh, ex- acceptable Yank. It's uh, the knighthood of the uh, Americans. <laughs>
1: <laughs> where were we? We, well, we? we were, we I, were explaining well, I, the, 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 the your first question is taken us this long. Uh, was... I,
0: and I and I no, I, uh, you've you've taken me on quite a journey uh, to the fact that I had no idea. I didn't I didn't know a lot about uh your life, man. I didn't know uh that you were a part of Gorillas in the Mist. I was just uh you sent me like a a really cool video of you with a an elephant and. I, I brought it up as a soft entrance into some of the questions I was okay. going to ask later that I thought were going to be a little bit gnarlier. And so I was like, well, let's ask a gentle question first. And we have chosen to uh, kind of like live in the first question. But you did uh, introduce a subject that I do want to bring up later, which is ecotourism. in like in the sense that what you were saying like, earlier, like uh ways in which um you can help to like finance places that are perhaps like a a nature preserve a place that's safe for animals and it and people can go there uh you know they can go there on tour safari whatever and i think there are um as far as as far as i know uh, a lot of that actually helps to prevent poaching i could be wrong but it's
1: no you're right Uh, uh, let's let's uh, step back a moment so nature tourism, where the the purpose of being somewhere is to enjoy nature, can be a two edged sword. Yeah, because if too many people come to enjoy nature, their presence and the hotels they want and the the hot showers they want or the air conditioning they want and all the staff they want yeah. can have a pretty big impact on the very bit of nature that they wanted to go and admire. Um, so it it has to be carefully balanced um, for it to be ecotourism. Yeah, And I'm a big fan of ecotourism, and and although that takes you into wilderness areas, frustratingly, it often means following rules. And the whole point, you know, is go into the wilderness and, and forget about rules and regulations and just be free in nature. But if you and several thousand other people want to be free in nature, then collectively you're going to impact very negatively on nature. So there has to be some sort of regulation which is the antithesis of the wilderness experience, isn't it? <laughs> I
0: guess. I guess, like the the question I have to ask is, uh, I, I guess, like, how do you define ecotourism as opposed to, like, like, let's just say you're a rich American, you want to go on a safari, and yeah, you want a hot shower every day, and you want, um, you want to eat Chipotle, you know, <laughs> or, or Panera you don't want to you don't want to rough it at all uh that I, I can see how that's you know that's going to be detrimental to the and environment there
1: are there are companies providing that experience which I would say are definitely ecotourism companies because they have thought through their their footprint and and have made sure that the the habitat and the species that they're visiting are not negatively impacted and in fact just to answer your first point on on tourism uh, particularly with, with guerrilla tourism, which has to be done on foot. There are no vehicles involved. Once you get to the edge of the forest, you might get a, a ride in a vehicle up to the edge of the forest yeah. or to the, the path where you start to walk up to the edge of the forest if it's some distance away, um, and then you're you're on foot. And that's a very real, you know, high-definition <laughs> high, high experience. I
0: would say yeah, training wheels off. <laughs> you're
1: you're absolutely in the forest. Um and there are buffalo, there are forest elephants, there are gorillas, any of whom, if they were really upset with you, could do you a lot of damage. Yeah. But you're with experienced rangers and probably a guide who will explain what you see and make sure that you don't piss off the, the elephants yeah, or yeah, the yeah, yeah. gorillas yeah. and result in a um an altercation. Um but what you're being there. And the fact that your tickets that you've bought to go and see the gorillas or to climb the mountain um are paying for park staff to be there means that poachers who might otherwise have set snares in that area aren't going to do so because they know that the rangers who are with the tourists will cut the snares. Yeah. So already you're making the forest safer as long as your impact is is modest. And for for mountain gorilla tourism, in fact, most Ape tourism, I would say most, um, is small numbers of people having a brief visit of one hour from a regulation distance. You try and maintain um, seven to 10 meters distance. It used to be seven, now it's 10 because extra precaution with, with COVID yeah, um, being a very transmissible virus. Yeah. Um, you you're, If those rules are followed, then the disturbance of the gorillas is minimal. The chances of them getting a human disease.
0: I don't want to interrupt you, but I got. I feel like it's almost necessary just for a second. Uh, just for people listening that don't quite uh, didn't quite catch that. It's uh, it's not. Uh, you know, people think of uh, di- social distancing. You think of transmitting COVID to another person. Uh, the animals can be infected with human diseases. That's yeah, yeah. It's two way street. Uh, but and I just I just think that like uh, it's not super well known that and so I just thought I I didn't want to interrupt you I just wanted to no, kind of no, no, clarify you, I, if,
1: if people weren't aware of that particularly with our close relatives yes of course uh, the, the the great apes um, chimpanzees bonobos orangutans and gorillas you you don't want to be the, the tourist who sneezes and affects <laughs> yeah. a family of gorillas uh, I, some of it, whom might not have enough resistance immunity to that particular organism that you've just sprayed over them so yes now now you are required to wear a surgical mask so that you can't sneeze or cough and risk infecting the gorillas and and what we now know as, as social distancing since covid has become more understandable to visitors yeah but you can explain that to the tourists you can't explain it to the gorillas yeah. And so at some point during a contact, it's a free forest. They can be wherever they want. And if you're standing next to a really nice stick of celery or piece of bamboo, they will walk over and start to eat it. And, and it's sometimes difficult to herd people away. And the moment where the gorilla walks really close to the tourist is a photograph that always gets puts on the put on their, put on their yeah. social media. Yeah. Um so, so people think that's what they're going there to try and do. And in that instance, you know, David Attenborough didn't help because yeah. there was no tourism when he came in 1978. Yeah. Um and I had the very good fortune to be the one to introduce him to the gorillas. So <laughs>
0: that's incredible. Oh my god.
1: Have so you seen the pictures you, of so you David are the one you are the one gorillas. that
0: introduced Sir David Attenborough to the gorillas? That must be man. Well, he owes you a debt of gratitude. I, I, we, I we've <laughs> been friends
1: ever since, and and it is fantastic. but but he wasn't sir david then he was just david
0: oh he was oh well then then, never mind (laughs) he was just regular old david back then so you were in so you were with diane diane fossey uh gorillas in the mist you introduced sir sir david attenborough to gorillas in the first place um you're kind of blowing my mind right now because i all the questions i wrote had nothing to do with the fact that uh like the probably like the level of um impact you've had on the history of gorilla research so on and, and so forth
1: probably not so much on gorilla research because um i keep getting deflected from research into conservation and i, I call myself yeah. a reluctant yes. conservationist yes i don't want to be a conservationist but when i start studying an animal if somebody else comes and kills them then that puts an end to the research so first of all make the animal safe and then i can get back to studying them Uh, i haven't got there yet
0: surprisingly that leads me to my first question of the podcast um i really wanted to talk to you about uh rebalance earth why you created it and what does it mean to transition to a nature-based economy i was looking at the website um i read a lot of stuff on this subject and i'm just kind of curious uh with uh with rebalance Earth, what is kind of like the mission?
1: Uh, well, it is as you just summarized, um, trying to change the global economy to regard nature as integral to it, rather than. Uh, I didn't study economics at school, um, yeah. but I was told that that in economics, nature is regarded as an externality. Now we have created the economy. It operates like this. You pull these levers and this happens and and you lower or raise interest rates and, you know, you you play with the economy as if it's a a separate thing. Whereas any ecologist, same root, eco, economy, ecology, it means your home. If you study your home, you must realize that your economy is entirely dependent on your ecology. Yes. And yet, for all the services we get from nature... We pay zero, mm-hmm. and if you if you say, well, hang on a sec, we're all breathing air which has oxygen in it. Where does that come from? It comes from the plants, and the plants photosynthesize sunlight, w- water, and produce oxygen, um, take in and store carbon, taking the carbon dioxide and s- store it, uh, and, and so they're providing a service. So carbon sequestration and storage is a service now in recent years because of of climate change and the fear that climate change is going to change all of our lives for the worst, um, that particular service has started to be valued. And people are frantically trying to invent machines to suck carbon dioxide out of the air and store the carbon and push it underground. Much of it having come from underground by human hands um, taking out fossil sunshine, fossil fuels and burning that energy and releasing the CO2 into the atmosphere. That's the argument. I mean, probably equally important is the fact that in in clearing forests for agriculture and mines and cities, we're also changing the surface temperature. Trees do a lot more than store carbon. Yeah. The the evapotranspiration, drawing up water from the roots, the evaporation of water from the leaves puts water vapor into the atmosphere, and that sets up weather systems which then travel around the world and water our crops and fill our aquifers and power our hydro schemes. So you think, oh, clean energy, hydro, that's good. It means you're probably going to put a big dam across the valley and flood habitat. And it's only going to work as long as it's raining in the water catchment. Where does the rain come from? Out of the sky. No, it doesn't start in the sky.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: A lot of it obviously evaporates from the ocean. But um, the the forest canopy program in Oxford estimate that a unit area of tropical rainforest, whether it's a square mile or a square kilometer, whatever that area is, puts eight to ten times more water vapor into the atmosphere than the same area of ocean. And I can direct you to an animated um, map of, of global precipitation, rain, snow, mist, and and it, it's clear that the tropical forests of Amazonia, in South America, uh, the Congo Basin and Guinean forests across Africa, and the Southeast Asian forested rain, uh, rainforested islands, um, Borneo, Sumatra, uh, New Guinea, all of those are driving weather systems that spread around the world and and you know keep our agriculture alive. Can't grow crops without rain. Can't. Um, produce hydropower without rain you can't produce clean drinking water
0: yeah breathe rain. air without oxygen
1: well th- those are services that we all take for granted it's nature yes uh, and and we the impact we're having on nature is such that as long as they're considered without value um industry and and, and people in general they, they might value them in a sort of a general sense of, oh i love a breath of fresh air and i do like to eat fresh food but Um, the economy doesn't recognize them. So the the idea behind Rebalance Earth arose out of a study done by um, an Italian biologist called Fabio Bazzaghi, And he looked at two areas of the congregation rainforest, one where there was still a population of forest elephants, one where they were wiped out decades ago. And he found that the above-ground biomass, for which basically the wood, the the, the weight of of wood stored in that forest was 7 to 10 times higher where there were elephants than where there weren't elephants. And he explains that in two ways. Um, First of all, the elephants are eating lots of vegetation. And that reduces the competition for nutrients that the big trees would face. The the rainforests tend to have quite thin, um, shallow soils. And whatever falls off the trees in terms of leaves or branches, whatever, quickly gets broken down and the nutrients back up into another tree. Mm-hmm. So there's competition for nutrients. And when the elephants are eating um, smaller plants around the base of the big old trees, they're doing the weeding. So yeah. you want to grow vegetables and wildflowers blow on the wind into your garden. You pull them out. You call them weeds. Oh, as,
0: as you call them uh, guard, gardeners of nature. I'm sorry. Gardeners have... of the forest. Is gardeners a, is of a a the hashtag. forest. I, I misphrased it. Yes. Sorry.
1: Hashtag gardeners of the forest. Yes. So, so apes and elephants are, are eating leaves which reduces the competition for nutrients of the big trees. But more than that, just like if you were gardening uh, vegetables in in your garden or or in your allotment, you take the weeds and you put them on the compost heap. And when they were rotted down, you'd put those nutrients on your vegetables. And that's what elephants do. They eat the leaves and produce piles of poo. Elephant dung is first-rate organic fertilizer. And given that an elephant eats roughly four percent of his or her body weight every day, yeah. they produce something like a ton of dung every week. More wow. if it's a big elephant. Wow. A small elephant. <laughs>
0: that's that's amazing. So that's a just lot think of about it. That's a lot of shit.
1: Before <laughs> the advent of firearms in Africa, maybe 150 years ago, yeah. estimates vary between 10 and 25 million elephants. Which means that every week. There was between 10 and 25 million tons of fertilizer being spread around the forest. And now there are fewer than half a million elephants. So we've lost 95, 96, 97% of the the soil-enriching activities of elephants. And likewise, other large animals have mostly been reduced in number by at least two-thirds, sometimes 90-something percent. And, And that's a service that, they used to provide to encourage vegetation growth, which enriches the the air we breathe and, and pumps water into the atmosphere to, to water our crops. And we're, we're still, you know, deforestation is still a problem. It's still yeah. happening. Yes. Um, so, yes, uh, ecotourism can help to protect forests because tourists who want to see a healthy forest ecosystem will pay money to go there. And that brings in money. But what happens if there's a civil war? Tourists stop coming. What happens if there's a pandemic? Tourists aren't allowed to travel. But elephants and gorillas will keep on eating and pooing as long as they, they're allowed to do so in their natural habitat. Yeah. So the Rebalance Earth um, team, I didn't set it up on my own. It was it four co-founders, uh, one of whom is an economist who was the assistant director at the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and and Ralph Wasn't part of his day job, but in his evenings, he sits calculating what each animal is worth. If you look at an area of of land with a population, say, of forest elephants, and you work out from Fabio's work the difference the elephants make, and there's you know umpteen gigatons of carbon in the Congo Basin forest, and if elephants are meaning there's seven percent more, well, then and today's elephants are the fathers and mothers of tomorrow's elephants so you protect today and you get that service going on into the future he worked out that each elephant could be valued at 1.75 million dollars as long as it lived its full life in its natural habitat and that was in 2019 when the price of carbon on the european exchange was i think about 23 24 dollars and now it's more than tripled
0: i was first Uh, introduced to some of these ideas um in a in a novel uh are you familiar with the novelist uh uh kim stanley Robinson.
1: i don't think i am maybe i should be uh well
0: i think you might enjoy well he he wrote a book called ministry for the future it's where i it's actually where i first became interested in economics it like after you know most of my life not caring whatsoever but it um introduced the idea to me of the carbon coin which is because you know money is essentially it's made up like no matter no matter how you slice it you know it's it yep it's you know there's bartering and you could say you know this money represents this and uh this petrodollar represents a, a barrel of oil or whatever but uh, uh the carbon coin is a like a currency for every so number of tons of carbon that you can pay exxon or uh british petroleum to put To Yeah, like uh, carbon sequester, they can have one coin and that coin is worth X amount of dollars. It's all very complicated, very confusing, and it's all uh, related to the world banks. And what what I think is uh, encouraging is that uh, the economy could run this way. What is discouraging is that uh, the life of the planet does seem to be in the hands of bankers. (laughs) <laughs> to a certain extent i, I don't know uh, how much you deal with that in your in your work
1: we need to bring them on board yeah because every, every, everyone every profession is made of people who live here yeah. so so it's, it's not something that only a small subsection of humanity should be concerned about everyone uh, is involved in this and we each have um a footprint And people talk about the carbon footprint, but I'd I'd like it to go wider than that because we're very hooked up on carbon. And carbon is not the only problem we're facing. No. The loss of of biodiversity, in in other words, the number of species that are living in in a natural ecosystem providing services to us is, is critically important. And if we want those ecosystems to be resilient in the face of climate change, it's no good destroying them. Or, or weakening them, degrading them to such a point that that they can barely survive, let alone restore health to our, our global ecosystem, the biosphere, studying elephants and gorillas. Going back or, to what you
0: said too, like uh, when there's a civil war uh, in uh, a place where ecotourism could be happening, uh, you know, that's going to obviously limit money going to that place. But war is actually, you know, it's incredibly, it's, it's incredibly uh devastating to the environment uh there's a humanitarian aspect and i think we should all be in like you know obviously we should care about that but i think we should also uh take note of the environmental impact uh, impact and um a thing i learned recently was in world war ii uh, the forests of europe were a very uh div- like very very biodiverse And because of all the shelling, bombing, fires, you know, all that stuff, it actually created like a lot of monocultures, um, reduced a ton of species uh, of not, you know, not just plant and animal life, but just uh, in general, making a completely different uh, biosphere.
1: Yes. And And military objectives are achieved normally without any thought for the ecological and sometimes even for the humanitarian impact. I'm I'm thinking of of spraying Agent Orange over forests uh, in Vietnam um, so that the enemy can't hide there. What, you know, (laughs) the the damage (laughs) that would do beyond the enemy is is so frightening to an ecologist that that they would never agree to that. But they're they're not consulted when a a general is taking a military decision because he has a very fixed focus. And from his perspective, that doesn't matter um but the more forests we destroy by people who think it doesn't matter the more it matters yeah and and gradually you know the big corporations of the world are waking up to this and there are now there's a thing called the task force for nature related financial disclosures which is a horrible mouthful but it's basically calculating the impact that each company has on on nature um, where they procure their raw materials, um, what it takes to ship them around the world, um, manufacture them, the impact of their factory, and then to ship them to the markets that, where people are going to buy the stuff, so, so, and, and then the lifetime of the product before you have to buy another one. Yeah, And all that is calculated to work out the impact on nature. And the more progressive companies are now looking to be nature-positive not just uh, reduce their negative impact, but actually have an overall positive impact.
0: I feel like I interrupt you, but I, I was, I, you always like, uh, you keep leading me into my next question anyway. So, <laughs> and the, we're talking about technology now, I think. And um, I am always fascinated and encouraged uh, by scientists and conservationists discovering new innovative ways to apply modern technologies to build a sustainable future. Uh so like some of the tech uh, used by Rebalance Earth, uh, you know, ranging from, uh, let's see here, I wrote down remote sensing to uh, GIS mapping, artificial intelligence, eDNA, and citizen science. Can you give me an example of how some of this tech might be used for conservation?
1: Sure, um, and, and you're right. Technology allows things that in the past were just not possible. Um, and, and greatly facilitates things that might have been possible, but very, very slow. Uh, and also, we hope, we'll get around the inevitable corruption involved in in sending very large sums of money around the world. Because if you're talking about billions of dollars, it tends to attract the attention of people who like billions of dollars and couldn't give a toss about the, the planet. Yeah. If they can get their hands on it. Um, so. One of the founders of Rebounds Earth is a, a blockchain specialist called Walid Al Sakaf, um, and Walid uh, was interviewing Ralph Shami, the IMF um, assistant director, um, recently retired. Sorry,
0: International Monetary Fund.
1: Yes, based in so, Washington D.C. Uh, and, and
0: so I'm, I'm just, I'm just sorry. Yeah,
1: so, um, so sorry. We, we mentioned it before, but you're you're right. If people aren't tuned into that world, I'm not tuned into that world. I, I didn't know I'm
0: not tuned into a lot like I learn. I learn almost exclusively from this podcast at this point in my life so I
1: mean, <laughs> that's great and if, if your listeners do the same that then we're we're providing a service for them um so so yes rebalance earth uh, is looking to um new technologies to help achieve what we're trying to do um so let's let's take a, a an elephant we're, for the purposes of this conversation let's call him. Um, George. And and George the elephant lives in the Congo Basin, um, but George has friends and relatives um, some of whom might be killed by ivory poachers. Now the ivory poacher is very often someone with no money who is given access to a gun and told if he goes out to shoot an elephant he'll get a small amount of money. And the man who owns a gun then sells the ivory and gets a larger amount of money but that is likely to be in the sort of low thousands of dollars. And if that ivory poacher learned that actually, if the elephant stays alive, they could earn, if you divide 1.75 million by by the lifespan of an elephant, roughly 60 years, you're looking at $30,000 a year. What? As long as the elephant stays alive. Suddenly the motivation to kill the elephant becomes um, sidetracked by the motivation to keep it alive. How does that money get from the company that wants to offset its unavoidable greenhouse gas emissions to the guy who could potentially kill the elephant but would actually, if you paid him, ensure it stayed alive and well and eating and pooing in the forest. Well, the blockchain can do that, I'm told. It's, it's a, a a system whereby everyone along the chain knows where the money is. So yes. it's much harder for someone to stick some in the back pocket or buy a villa in France or whatever with the proceeds.
0: I'm finding it in my notes right now. Um, uh, you've done a you've done ton of work with the United Nations. Uh, but notably developing anti-poaching policy. And I understand not all poaching is the same. So, for instance, of course, uh, a rich American uh, travels to a nature preserve and kills an endangered species for, like, a trophy. That's what we kind of, like, see here is, like, that's what poaching is.
1: I find that... If he's bought a license that isn't poaching, that's legal hunting. Oh
0: well, I I get into those. there's a
1: big, big controversy over whether that's um, the right thing to do. Yeah, I Um, guess. But again, even that, what would a rich American pay for a license to kill an elephant? Maybe ten, fifteen thousand dollars, maybe even twenty thousand dollars. But if the elephant is alive and well and bringing in thirty thousand a year in perpetuity, precisely. And his children, if they grow up, will be doing the same. Then the economics of trophy hunting just is knocked out of the proverbial ballpark. Um, So so again, but how do we know it's the right elephant? You know, there are lots of elephants. They all look a bit alike, but there are differences. Yeah. So smart camera traps can not only film or photograph a passing elephant, but if the AI is suitably informed, it can say, I've seen that elephant before because it has this particular characteristic. Um, And, We'll call that elephant George. We're back to George, the elephant, and George hasn't been seen for ten days. Now, thirty thousand a year is eighty dollars a day. So, if George hasn't been seen for ten days, his presence on a video um, says, "Okay, that releases ten days, eight hundred dollars." Yeah. To the fund, which is then divided between the government and the national parks and the local community and and the guy who actually took the photograph or set up the camera trap. Suddenly, yeah. there is money to pay people to protect the forest and the elephants. And the system we're in the process of setting up a field trial for, will will, we hope demonstrate this. A lot of it, the technology is is in its infancy. So it isn't like a Shazam, it's done. It's let's try this, let's try that. And and let's find a community that is on board with this and and agrees, okay, every able-bodied male is gonna stop it's usually the able-bodied males who, who poach, not the, the women. Um, but the women might set snares to catch antelope, and those can kill elephants too. Yeah. So if they're not going to catch antelope, what are they going to eat? They've got to be given goats or or, or, or some alternative uh, food source. And normally, the, there's not the money to do that. But again, if the payment for ecosystem services is coming on the blockchain, then you can make plans. And it, and the people who are growing food who say, but the bloody elephants come and eat our food eat our bananas, destroy our crops. If only we had the money to put up an electric fence. Well, here's some money. Put up the fence, put a camera on the fence, and if the elephant is one of the client elephants that is known, bingo, you you get paid for since the last time that elephant was seen. If it isn't known, you add that elephant and its unique characteristics to the roster of client elephants. So yes. gradually you get an accurate census of how many elephants are in the area, not by counting the dung and working out roughly plus or minus 15% how many there are, but knowing them individually. And each time a, a client elephant is identified uh, using the technology, then the, the community benefits. And we envisage communities saying, well, it's it's miles to the nearest hospital, or, or, or there's nowhere for our school. The kids to go to school. We want to build you know, clinics or, or schools. And now if you go to Africa, you see boards up saying this school has been built by, as a gift from the people of the United States, USAID, or, or from the European Union. But we want signs saying this school has been built by your elephants who are yeah. working in the forest every day Hell yeah. to keep the world environment healthy and you benefit. And that is going to transform the quality of life for millions of people Hell who yeah. live in or alongside the the keystone species, the species who are the determinants of the health of that ecosystem, and it will enable companies to become nature positive by reducing their negative impact and and paying for the services that they have previously thought of as just free. That's the sort of the big dream, Um, and with with our four co-founders, I haven't mentioned Rob Gardner, who comes from the finance world, So we've got a financier, an economist, a blockchain specialist, and yours truly, (laughs) a biologist, um, trying to change the world. And and it's early days yet, but rebalance.earth is a website. And if you go to rebalance.earth and and look at the timeline and and watch some of the videos, last year we held the first natural capital conference in in London. And it was fascinating. We had politicians and, and corporations and um, pension industry people in the room you know usually i talk to an audience of people who like elephants these are people who didn't give elephants a second thought and when i pulled a ball of elephant poo out of my bag and said <laughs> this is why elephants are important it kind of stuck in their mind yeah
0: everyone yeah, thought yeah. it was their
1: front teeth that were worth a lot of money but no, no that's that's old no
0: hat. it's it's a and, and that is that is one of the most incredible things like you know once people can it's building awareness. It's education. The fact is, uh, killing an elephant, you know, and to just to just to take its tusks, just to make a few bucks, and uh, considering that, like, I'm not an economist, and as you said, we're we're not economists, but that's that's a bullshit uh, way to think about things. And like you said. You took a like a giant elephant turd out of a backpack, and you're like, "Hey, this is where it's really at," and it is really where it's at. This is like this is we're talking about the actual like survival of the planet. Um,
1: the positive power of poo.
0: The positive power of poo, and I have to say, uh, since we're discussing education, I must I uh, have to bring up ecoflicks. Uh, let me refer to my notes. Sorry, <laughs> like we've gone so far on so many things. Yeah, um, no, but.
1: but- at the same time that the Rebalance Earth um, conversations were happening over video calls, because we were all locked down in our homes <laughs> because of the COVID restrictions, um, we also started a new TV channel and streaming platform uh, called EcoFlix. Um, David Castleman, a Californian recently retired trial lawyer, he describes himself as a recovering trial lawyer, <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: 40 years of being a trial lawyer. Now he's doing something um, positive for the planet. But in fact, he's been good for him animal causes for um, 20, 30 years. Um, okay. Well, then um, always, always good for him. And, and then, then setting up the Cambodia Wildlife Sanctuary. And anyway, David agreed to um, get involved with building a platform that would inform people. Um, and with his support, we've made it it's free to schools and universities worldwide so anyone who's listening to this as a teacher go to ecoflix.com and, and scroll down to the teachery bit and you can sign your school up um, and we'll keep providing reliable informative material about wildlife and the environment and and what you can do to help and there's stuff for kids there's stuff for adults It's it's quite exciting to be in on the ground floor of something like this, we're not yet as big as Netflix. It's only been going two years. It's, it's just a little seedling. Yeah. But you know what happens with seedlings? You water them and fertilize them, and
0: and then they grow. You- and I, I have a, uh, for many reasons, I am uh, very supportive of this project. Uh, man, I'll, I'll just start off the top of my head right now. One, um, I looked at your website and I saw that you uh, provide uh, profits to NGOs that are, like, obviously doing the work that needs to be done. So that's incredibly awesome. Uh, teachers can access this for free. So if you are a teacher listening to this, EcoFlix is available for your classroom. Um, and I, I could list on and on and on. Uh, obviously, you we're, could, we're working it better
1: than me. We're working on teacher materials so that – because teachers have to deliver a curriculum, and they want to know which part of the curriculum, this or that documentary – can help them deliver. Yeah, They can't just watch you for fun these days. People, you know, it's teacher time is is limited. Um so so we're trying to do our best to help the teachers. And you mentioned the NGO partners. Um when you make I mean EcoFlix itself is a, a charity. It's a nonprofit in the States and a, a registered charity in the UK. So in the US, when you subscribe it's a tax write-off. You, you, you don't pay tax on that that money. But if you subscribe through one of the charities, they get 100% of the money. So basically, you're making a donation to a charity that's helping elephants or wolves or pick your species, and and your money goes to them. Uh, and, And we're developing other ways of helping the charities, helping them present their work. Because I think if people understood... How important this work is. It's not just that animals are nice and fluffy and we like them. Of course they are, and we do. Yes. <laughs> they have a really important role to play in keeping us all alive, and and that's kind of the message that we're trying to get across on EcoFlick. So that's another exciting way it's, we're trying to. Change it's almost
0: a almost a a biodiversity of um, <sighs> nature films. And uh, no offense to our great friend Sir David Attenborough, but uh, you know how it is now with. You know, with conglomerates and Disney Plus now owns National Geographic, and that's fine. Like that's actually great. I I actually think it's I think it's fantastic that um, because of Disney Plus, more kids are exposed to National Geographic films. That's great. But you know, all that money just kind of goes into the pocket of um, Disney to continue. They
1: are for-profit corporations. Yes, yeah, yeah, uh, they uh, do uh, make donations to. conservation, but that's sort of philanthropy. It's not the
0: same thing. It's not the same thing as EcoFlix. And I highly suggest anyway, any educators, teachers listening, uh, check out EcoFlix, give it a, give it a shot, see what's up.
1: And, and let us know what you think, because we're still building it. It's early days yet. Your, your opinions can really help us uh, improve it.
0: So I'm, I'm going to like, I'm going to completely just jump like kind of into a, another because we've kind of crossed so many of the uh, questions I wanted to ask and without me even like looking at my notes. But one thing I did not want to uh, leave uh, leave off. Uh, you are an ambassador for the UN's Convention on Migratory Species. What is your role as an ambassador and what are some of the key details involved in this project? What is, uh, um, what is this? Okay, well,
1: um, the idea of national borders is a a relatively recent human invention and and species have been moving around the planet long before we drew lines on it and said no this bit's ours and that bit's yours and don't you come here and all that business so if you're going to conserve a species that migrates across borders governments have got to cooperate and governments aren't always on speaking terms or or they're a long way apart and there's no mechanism for them to liaise and and the cms the Convention on migratory species uh, provides a legal framework for all that. Uh, And uh, oddly enough, for a long time, mountain gorillas were the only primate listed. Because if you talk to a biologist about migratory species, and they might think of migratory birds or whales or um, turtles or wildebeest you mentioned, you know, but apes don't migrate in that sense. But under the terms of the convention, a species that, that regularly and predictably crosses back and forth across an international border is migrating. If we're gonna do that, we need to do that with knowledge of those pathways and and make an underpass of actions on the ground to protect migratory species, and and some species which aren't yet listed under the convention that should be, um, and others that have been listed, but the action has not been sufficient to prevent their decline. And some good news, some some species are recovering because if you give nature half a chance, she will bounce back. Yes. And, that, and that's what we're trying to do for migratory species. And that's not just because they're nice and fluffy and we like them, but because they are part of the ecosystems that sustain us all. And whether it's the migratory birds, you know, flocks that come in and play a role in an ecosystem in the north and then fly south for the, 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 the northern winter or vice versa, um, they are of great interest to many people who like, you know, counting the number of bird species they've seen. But I want them to think of the, the function of these beautiful organisms and what they do for us. Because if we don't consider that, then we tend to regard them as a an expensive luxury, which, if we get round to, we might conserve, but not thinking of of what benefit we get from it. Yeah. And and people are so hung up on 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 the um the climate crisis and a lot of that is down to the the reduction in the number the area of ecosystems that used to stabilize the climate you know we're cutting down the forests, we're polluting the seas we're we're changing the surface of the world and yet it's the ecosystems in the biosphere that keep us all healthy and fed and so it's in our own interest to protect them
0: and as always um When I have conversations uh, like this, I like to make an important point uh, to say that I am not a climate doomer. uh, And I believe the best way forward is to refuse to become uh, a pessimist and to believe that there are solutions and reasons to be optimistic. Uh, For people listening to this podcast right now that are wondering what are some of the things they could do personally as individuals to help with conservation and help preserve species and delicate ecosystems. uh, What are some of the best things they can do as individuals?
1: I think the three Ps, the power of your purse or pocket. When you buy something, if you don't know where it comes from, um, if if you're buying a a new window frame or or a ream of paper, um, has it got FSC on the side, the Forest Stewardship Council? Uh, FSC independently certifies that paper or or timber is produced in a sustainable way. So being an ethical shopper, making sure that you're not buying palm oil in products that is associated with deforestation. There is now a system of certification for deforestation-free palm oil. It's not completely perfect, but it's the best thing we've got, and the more people use it, the better. So think of what you spend whether you're, whether you're buying a bar of chocolate for a snack is the chocolate coming from a country where deforestation has replaced natural forests with um chocolate plantations or or cocoa plantations or or um is it from a a place where where child labor isn't a problem and and there's no recent deforestation so so you you every one of us when we go shopping are influencing or pulling economic strings on the other side of the world. And if we're aware of that, we can do something about it. And today it's so easy. If you pick up a product that you usually use and you find that it hasn't got something saying, we get up raw materials from a certified sustainable source, then you can just tweet the company. Say, I was gonna buy your product, but until you can convince me that it's coming from the right place and and not cutting down trees or, or destroying species, then I'm putting it back on the shelf. And how many times do you think the, the social media department of a big corporation is going to see that message without thinking, actually, we really need to pull our finger out and do the right thing? Yeah. And there's an organization, a very powerful, a very effective American organization called Mighty Earth. Um, I think you can't say that without saying Mighty Earth. Mighty, Mighty Earth. Earth is really, very good at, at getting the CEOs of companies to sit up and take notice of the ecological impact of their procurement so that's the first p second p the political p
0: yeah
1: who do you vote into into power Mm -hmm. every one of you if you're too young to vote now you'll be voting soon and your representatives know that so if you write to them saying i'm really disturbed that we don't have the legislation that requires companies to do the right thing um maybe you can help to push that in the right direction um and the third p is your personal power uh, what what do you spend your spare time doing well Mm -hmm. you can support organizations that are protecting the planet you can go out and pick up plastic litter and put it in a recycling bin so that it doesn't break down into microplastics get into the water course end up in the fish that you want to eat for dinner because we're all eating microplastics whether we like it or not so so you know the power of your purse the political power and your personal power you, you can make a big difference and if you get together with a few friends it starts to amplify if you get your school to do it Ask your school catering department, where do you get your, your chocolate from? Is it coming from ethical sources? And if not, why not? I don't want to spend my pocket money, if, if I was a child, knowing that I'm depriving another child of an education because I have to work in a cocoa plantation to produce a crop for me because the company can't be bothered to get it from a sustainable source, an ethical source. So those are the sort of messages I would want to get across. And and if you do tune into Ecoflix flicks or, or find it on online, um, get it in an app on your phone, you'll find that basically we don't dwell on the problems. We want to focus on the people who are solving the problems. Yeah. So you'll get some pointers that way. So there's, there's some yes. good ways. Of, uh,
0: I love the way you ended that uh, for us. Cause uh, also, and I will speak on the final P, which is personal. I have a, uh, a lot of personal experience uh with volunteering it is it's rewarding it's uh it's not it's not a bummer it's not a chore it's uh half the damn time it's like actually fun and yeah. you're networking you're meeting cool people i mean that's uh I, it, and especially for I, like I younger, for younger listeners yeah
1: and look what happens yeah,
0: exactly <laughs> sir david attenborough owes you basically his entire career because you volunteered not quite, not so, quite but... well uh to all the younger listeners uh someday the future of sir david attenborough will owe you their career because you volunteered so get out, just go out and volunteer it ain't, it ain't that hard it is that fun come on man it's uh it's social it's great ian i have one last question to ask you and, and it's uh I mean, we've covered so many of your projects, so many of the organizations you're involved in. But I guess, like, the last thing I have to ask is, uh, how would you suggest people uh, follow you, follow some of uh, some of the organizations that um, you are a part of, and get involved?
1: Um. Well, first of all, go to a search engine. I recommend Ecosia. <laughs> okay. Ecosia is a search engine that every. A dozen searches you plant a tree. Wow, okay. But other well known search engines. That wow, people
0: use, uh, please repeat that search engine. I seriously, uh,
1: Ecosia E C O S I A Ecosia. Okay, um, uh, it, it works just as well as the better known search engine that everyone thinks new of.
0: search engine unlocked. Ecosia, that's what I use now. Period, done, got it. Thank you.
1: Anyway, okay, so so you you go to Ecosia, <laughs> you look up, um, you could do hashtag gardeners of the forest, because I keep banging on about that. Um, but I I try and circulate useful articles and videos and things on on most of the um, social media platforms. Um, so people are welcome to to follow me on those. Um, if you just want to sit and watch um little videos with, without any music or or fancy stuff, um, I've got a YouTube channel. The easiest way to find that is actually to type in gorilla mums, (laughs) because that's my most viewed video. It's been viewed more than 30 million times. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. Um, And and gorilla mums is just two and a half minutes of gorilla behavior. It's actually in a sanctuary, not in the wild. But because it's in a sanctuary, you can see the little mannerisms and, and communication between the gorillas, which happens every day in the forest that you wouldn't normally see because of all the leaves. So it's, it's, it's sad that these gorillas have been rescued from the illegal wildlife trade and they've been brought up in a, what is like a zoo enclosure. Uh, one day I hope Cameroon will find a patch of forest for them to be returned to a natural environment. But, uh, and normally in a sanctuary, animals are put on contraception because every baby born in the sanctuary takes the space of a potential rescue baby and there's always more animals needing rescuing than you've got spaces in a sanctuary. So most sanctuaries don't breed but this particular sanctuary called the Limbe Wildlife Centre in Cameroon had two contraceptive failures in fairly close succession. So two females ended up with babies and and they're so gorgeous. I mean it's, it's hard not to celebrate even though that isn't the purpose of the sanctuary. And these two females are just being gorilla mums, which is why I Put a, a, um, yeah anyway it's, it's a, a fun video to watch um because it doesn't need my voiceover or, or music it is yeah. what it is and yeah. that's why 30 million people have watched it because it's self-explanatory yeah so a little little a two and a half minute course in guerrilla behavior and communication
0: all right guys you heard it here first thank you so much for coming on the podcast today this has been an absolute pleasure and a joy to have you on the show I admire you so much, and I admire the work you do, and uh, I can't thank you enough for uh, being on the podcast, man.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure. I'm worried that some of your listeners are thinking, hang on, he didn't finish that story. (laughs) It's (laughs) covered so much ground, and I went off on so many tangents. So if you get complaints saying, well, what happened to Nick the elephant that I had the six-minute conversation with or um, (laughs) – Because I will direct it, 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 all of their it, it,
0: complaints it, 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 directly to you, actually. This is what I'm going to do. <laughs> uh,
1: no, okay, but, but there are there are articles and lectures online that will help people finish those off. Uh, I apologize in advance if people were left hanging and I, I forgot to finish the story. <laughs>
0: if, if you're left hanging, follow, it, follow Ian on social media. Go to his YouTube channel. Read his articles. You will no longer be hanging because you will be uh, fully informed and uh all right yeah man i gotta go uh back to being a dad um uh, it's been a,
1: yeah it's been i was, a pleasure I was thinking now. when you were when you were gone that, uh, it, that one of the most appealing aspects of, of gorilla behavior is <laughs> that the silverback plays a, an important role in bringing up the kids once once the babies are old enough to be off their mom and playing around and they often go and sit by dad and snuggle up to him while their mum goes off and has a bit of peace and quiet in another room. So you can go and be the silverback. <laughs>
0: That's a, I, I would say it's probably the animal that I most aspire to be like. So, um, oh yeah, we'll leave it on that. Ian, have a fantastic night. I hope it's a beautiful night in London and I'll talk to you soon.
1: Thanks, Don. Bye, man. Bye. Thank bye. You.
0: bye.